welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today, we're talking about... Living a meaningful life. What, is it, what does that actually mean? What does that entail? What are the challenges to that? And I think that some people might right off the bat say, well, I'm already living a meaningful life, so I don't need to listen to this, right? That could be a, a significant obstacle that we need to overcome. But I, I think there's a lot of ways in which people encounter crises of meaning or it changes over time. You know, we talk about midlife crises as uh, existential, um, what do we call them? They're crises, but they're also like situations in which people have to figure out uh, a new way forward. So um, you're the one who actually wanted to do this particular topic. Um, what, what did you have in mind? I mean, I think the word meaning covers a lot of ground. What was, it is. What was the thing that you were sort of centered on, or what was the kernel that you wanted to uh, focus so, on? So, I don't know, a while ago I was writing about, like, the locus of meaning, of where one places meaning, and the, the potential pitfalls of where you place it, because if you place it on something that is not, you know, grounded, um, especially if it's something within the world, then those things can be taken away from you. And thus the thing that you base your meaning in from is taken away from you. And thus throws you into a crisis, like existential otherwise of like what to do when you don't have any control over your meaning. That was a piece that you wrote in Stoicism Today, right? If I remember it was. right. Yeah. So we'll put a link to that um, so people can read it and, and check it out. Now, yeah, there's a vulnerability that you wanted to call attention to in in that piece. And and the vulnerability comes in part from not having things properly set up. I mean, is it possible to live a life where the meaning of one's life just can't be taken away what whatsoever? What do you think about that? Uh yeah, if, if you can um I guess, you know, Pulling from some stoicism, like the really one of the really basic ideas is this dichotomy of control. There are certain things that you have complete control over, and then there's everything else that you have either zero control over or like only influence over. Yeah. But like the things, if you can somehow place your meaning on something that is internal for you that you have complete control over, then you can never have any one else or any uh, like natural uh, thing happen to take that away. So that was the crux. So that's sort of like what, you know, when Marcus talks about the inner citadel, right? You've got this walled off part of yourself. It's not the only part of yourself. I mean, you can go outside mm -hmm. the walls, but you've got this part that you can always feel secure about. Yeah. And so he usually talks about that in reference to finding some sort of equanimity or tranquility within your own mind that you, you are beset by the vicissitudes of life. And you're like, okay, well, Hold on a second. Let, let me recenter here. Um, but you know that inner citadel uh, can be a citadel for more than one thing. And if you can place your meaning in something that is uh, a little bit more higher in like abstraction. So, for example, like uh, you know, a uh, if you're a construction worker, you're at one level of abstraction. You're like there 
uh, swinging the hammer and mm-hmm. and putting in screws and whatnot. But then the the architecture the architect is at another level of abstraction where he's he doesn't have, actually do any of the building, but he designs the things of which the uh, the workers become component parts of. Okay. And and so the idea here would be then to uh, take away the uh, don't put your your meaning in something that is uh, kind of like ephemeral, like being a, a a worker in this regard to pull it back up to some place where um, I can now be a teacher of workers or like I, I am like kind of this more idealized version of like, okay, I build and, but I can then use my building, my, the, the idea of being a builder and put it into different contexts. I can either build or I can uh, help design or I can teach someone to build. Um, and these are things that are now, uh, give you defenses against like, you know, uh, being hurt or like just time taking the ravages of us and we're all going to eventually <laughs> pass on. Um, well, and, but, and our uh, bodies are going to degenerate on the way too. Right. Right. And so if, as long as you can say like, okay, how can I build, even though I'm not physically building, um, that's where you try to like pull your meaning back to. Okay. You know, this, this term meaning, you brought up a couple other, terms that are good things like uh, equanimity or tranquility. Um, another term that we see coming up a lot with stoicism and other philosophies of life is, is happiness. And so do you think there is a interconnection between um, those terms? And I know we're also going to talk about freedom and autonomy and, and this broader term of meaning. Are they interconnected are they different things from each other are they synonyms for each other you know like a meaningful life um, if you're a stoic you could say well you know the meaningful life or the happy life is the virtuous life it's a life where you're behaving in certain ways and there's there's some things that you might enjoy if you're lucky enough but they're not those aren't the things that make or break your your happiness it's whether you have justice wisdom courage temperance those sorts of things, whether you fulfill your duties or, you know, slag off on them. Um, that's what, what actually provides you with meaning. And, and I, I guess I'm asking about this in part because I, I had a client who became a friend and he always liked to come back to that. Um, when we were talking about the Stoics, he, he hired me to help him like work through uh, Lawrence Becker's A New Stoicism and then some other things by Seneca. And he, he would, uh, you know, when he talked about happiness, he would say, you know, I'm not so worried about being happy. I'm much more worried about having a meaningful existence mm-hmm. to, to what, I, what I do. You know? And he, he was a guy who had position, had authority, had wealth, but was much more interested in, you know, being a good person, getting getting important things done, uh, in his view. So what I mean, what do you think about that idea about interchanging meaning for happiness or uh like for my conception of especially the, the stoic view of this is that the the happiness and the tranquility are the kind of the the fruits of the labor of being virtuous. That like okay. if you are pursuing these things, these things follow, but that is not the point. The point is to have a, a virtuous and you know good life here. Yeah. And and if you are thus, you know, living in accordance with nature as the Stoics would put it, then you will then 
the result of that is that you happen to be, you know, uh, tranquil and uh, uh, happy. Okay. And, 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 you know, interestingly, too, when you when we talk about virtue, it's a very old fashioned term. Right. And I think a lot of people, they hear it and they kind of tune out. They're like, ah, I don't want to listen to that stuff. Right. But um, that's that's maybe because they don't see a lot of meaning in those terms. So and, maybe we we'll talk about it as excellence. Yeah. Or, or we have to unpack. We, you know, we have to go you, that metaphor that you had about like, you know, the architect and the builder. And I suppose we could put like the subcontractor in the middle or, <laughs> or you know, specialist people. The electrician comes in, uh, the building inspector. So, you know, maybe we have to go back down and say, OK, well, what does what is it like to be a virtuous person or not even virtuous necessarily, but at least motivated by wanting to be that kind of person? Is that is that, in fact, a meaningful life? a life that um, is rich in, in meaning, or is it being kind of boring, being kind of a prude, you know, passing up the, and, and I think we could, we could probably make a good case that for virtue ethics, like whether it's Stoic or Aristotelian or something else, um, properly understood, virtue is going to be compelling. It is going to be interesting. It's going to open up opportunities for us to live a, a richer, fuller life that we we can take joy and pride in, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would also throw in the, especially, you know, you got like two conceptions, or at least you know, there, there are many conceptions, but uh, of, yeah. I'm going to compare and contrast the Stoics and the Cynics, where the, the Cynics were like, you, you could take her to leave all the people around them. It's like, yeah, like you, you could be a Cynic in the middle of the city, or you could be a perfectly happy Cynic out in the middle of the um, the wilderness, yeah. the uh, hermit. Um, th- there's no need for the interaction between other people. And uh, the Stoics is the human as a, uh, a fundamentally... Uh, social being and yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can't be virtuous in a social sense then there's no point yeah that's 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 quite true um you could say that the stoics in a certain sense are more like you know the platonists and the aristotelians and that they they see that as an integral part of who we are um i mean aristotle uses this term human being as the political creature but it's better to translate that as as a social creature we're we're creatures that that do things in, uh, as, as he calls them, um, sharings, koinoniae. Um, you can also translate it as community or group or something like that, where we have something in common with, with somebody else. Like you and I talking on this show right now and our listeners listening to us, we're all part of a sharing in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good consideration. I mean, the cynics... They, you know, there are modern day cynics, right? There's actually a, a Facebook group called the Kunosarges where they get together and, you know, compare notes about cynic practices. But I, I think that they're also quite similar to a different movement that we see in the present, these, these people that call themselves minimalists. And mm-hmm. there's an interesting thing going on there as well that I, I didn't think we'd originally talk about, but we, we actually should, you know, because it does connect up with not just cynicism, but also the Stoics. And I, I think arguably with some of the other traditions and with some of the existentialists that I know you want to get to talking about in a bit. Um, can we make our lives more meaningful by taking things away? 
That seems to be like the central insight of minimalism. Mm -hmm. You know, we shave off the things that we bought maybe because we thought they were meaningful, but they're actually not, they're not giving meaning to our life. They're actually just clutter or Mm -hmm. distractions. I mean, what, what do you think about that question? Can we make our lives more meaningful by taking things away? I feel that there is at least something to investigate there. Okay. That, um, especially if you also include um, obligations that you have given to yourself. And when you have enough obligations, then all your other obligations start to suffer for the fact that you have taken so many things on. And if you are uh, constantly neglecting those things that are truly important because you're like oh well i have to go and uh uh see my friend um and and play a board game yeah, um, yeah. every wednesday night because we i made that obligation to myself like three years ago uh does that also then take away from other things that might be a little bit more important like i don't know some civic responsibility or like some familial responsibility or getting enough rest <laughs> right oh i have a friend who who loves to play board games and uh, he invited me along one time to a friend's house. He was very nice and we enjoyed ourselves. But he works second shift and so we were playing uh, some board games third shift. Okay. Uh, we we started at like eleven and we went to like five a.m. Threw my sleep off for the rest of the week and it was just like it was fun to do, but like the the outcomes and how it was a detriment to all these other things in my life, I had to make that trade-off. I was like, that was fun, but I don't think I can do that. Yeah, that's actually a great point. I mean, very often when we when we hear about minimalism, usually it's framed in terms of like, well, let's have less possessions. You know, people think about the uh, Marie Kondo. Um, I forget exactly what the name of her approach is, but, you know, you like – you, you try to pare things down, have like, I think, 50 books. Um, maybe it's 100 books. I, I know I would have to get rid of most of my books. Um, and you do this, you know, similar things with your clothing. And you ask yourself if it brings you joy. And if it doesn't bring you joy, then you thank it and, and send it on its way. Thank and, and, you for your service. Exactly. And there's something to that, right? I, it's kind of a nice thought. Um, I've tried it. Like, and it puts you in a what? psychological state, which makes it a little bit easier for you to get rid of things. Does it? That's interesting. At least for me. Now, is that because um, you've you've personified the thing in a certain way or anthropomorphized it, and now you have like a relationship with it, but you're ending the relationship? Is that the... I don't think I'm ending the relationship with it. Okay. I'm ending the relationship with the either the previous me that bought it in the first place, or if it's a gift, I'm ending oh. the relationship of the gift being given. Because a lot of times, like, I'll have, like, things that were gifts to me, but I don't really particularly like. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, but I keep them around because I'll feel guilty uh, giving them up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so I was like, well, thank you for your purpose. You know, this person gave it to me with love. I, I tried, but I can't. So thank you for what you did. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this as just an aside. When I have gifts like that, and I've, I've received many like that over the years myself, I'm always happiest when I can identify somebody else who actually would enjoy that gift and then I can give it to them. And 
I, you know, as a matter of fact, I don't even like conceal the fact that it's, it's re-gifting. I just say, you know, I, I, this is not something for me. This is something that, that I think you would get something out of. And I I know I feel good and then they feel good. I don't know how the original giver would feel. (laughs) So I don't, I don't tell them. if you want to know more about this, you can look at, listen to our very first episode. Did we talk about this in the first episode? Yeah, it was a, a, a Christmas. Um, it was like the oh, two-hour long one before yeah. we did the show. Yeah, right. It's in the podcast feed. As yeah, as yeah. Um, <laughs> what was what was the title of that? It was uh, why it's um, good to give. I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, so let's let's find let's come some, back to uh, the topic. crises. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, you know we have a crisis of getting giving a gift or getting a gift that you didn't like. So what are some crises of meaning? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of cases like this. We mentioned when people you know have a midlife crisis or an existential crisis, and and those usually result when you know certain factors come together. Like you know, as you mentioned, talking about the the piece that you wrote, if you've heavily invested emotionally or in the meaning of your life into something that's vulnerable to something like your job, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's a little bit easier if you're self-employed, I suppose, because then you can keep on doing what you're doing, but you might not make any money at it. Right? <laughs> but but if, if you're, if you're, I don't know, you're, you're working for a company and in the kind of marketplace that we exist in now, um, some other company buys them out and they decide they're not going to keep you on. And that's, that's your identity. That's who you are you are probably going to have a serious crisis of meaning, meaning that you're, you're feeling that you've got less meaning in your life that you can connect with. And, you know, there's, there's actually a much bigger, more generic question that I, I get asked, you know, every so often when people find out that I teach philosophy, they, then they ask me, oh, what's the meaning of life? And I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll say, I don't know, you know, uh, I know what my meaning of my life is. I don't know what the meaning, capital T capital M is. Uh, but, I, but I think there's a lot of people who are looking for or think that they found, you know, something, uh, something that universal, right? And if, and if that lets them down, they're really going to be hurting. And this is kind of one of those really core thoughts within existentialism, is there's not a the ontological, like, is in the world yeah, meaning right. uh, that, that you can just grab, that that is one of these like things that you have to contend with and how you contend with it uh, will really have a major impact in your life. Yeah. And, and they're not saying that you can't cobble together something from like, you know, the traditional understandings of the meaning of life. Right. But mm-hmm. you have to um, take the responsibility for the parts that you're, you're accepting and, and integrating or the if, if you're going to buy into some big system, you know, some some overall overarching thing, you're the one who's deciding to do that. It's not forcing itself upon you and making you do that. You, you are ultimately responsible. You are you know, condemned to be free, to you know, to be responsible for all of your choices. I want to come back to this, like how we get into crises of meaning. But it, but I also I think it could be useful to talk about you know we brought up the existentialists and we've talked about the stoics at this point and i think some people would say oh well you know there's some there's some interconnections between them like they both put an emphasis on you know responsibility for 
our situation and, you know, they both highlight um, how the world is kind of, you know, screwed up and um, maybe we, we don't have uh, complete control over it, but we, we do control certain parts of it. But I think a lot of people would say, so the existentialists say there isn't any preset meaning to life. The Stoics say there is a preset meaning to life. That's a fundamental difference between them. And I want to kind of push back and say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's so cut and dried as that. I think that um, maybe the Stoic, especially in modern times, has to be semi-existentialist and and accept that, um, you know, if, if we want to say, well, you know, virtue is, is uh, what we ought to be orienting ourselves towards, that's our choice to see things that way, mm. right? It's not like virtue uh, came up and, you know, ganged up on me and, you know, justice put me in a full Nelson and then wisdom went to town. <laughs> and, and, you know, by the time that they were done, I was like, I give, I give, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you think about that idea that maybe there's more compatibility between stoicism and existentialist uh, approaches than, than people give it credit for? Yeah, I guess I've always kind of thought of virtue as at least, uh, maybe intersubjective that is a, a thing that as practitioners of um you know being human beings yeah um finds that if you if you try these things uh for many people these things do tend to lead to uh certain outcomes yeah, yeah. and if, if if you take these certain value preconceptions like this idea of the dichotomy of control if you agree with this value judgment then the rest of it kind of follows from there but i think really um you have to be convinced of this value judgment in the first place and i don't know if you can uh ground that value judgment in anything besides a subjective yeah, position. Yeah, I think some of I mean, you mentioned experiencing, right? Experimenting with things. I think a lot of cases we um, we get into a philosophical point of view that has like a big, you know, structure behind it. And we're like, well, I'm going to try out this bit of it. And, you know, it kind of makes sense to me, but I'm not really sure about this. And then we experiment with it. And then we're like, yeah, actually, this this works pretty good. Sort of like... um listening to music that we haven't tried out before and we're like yeah i don't know if i like this sort of stuff but now i listen to it and it's kind of a catchy tune i think you can you can dance to it and and now you start to you you develop kind of an affinity for it and you're willing to take on a little bit more okay I, you know let's see what else they have to to contribute and then you start reading some more seneca or epictetus and you're like oh there's this other thing over here that i should try and you kind of you know gradually put together um, you put together a system within yourself within your own life but you're the one who's choosing to take these things on and mm -hmm. you can you can say that um, trying out the experience shows you that there's something objective about it or you're even you know just intersubjective it's not pure like oh I'm just gonna decide on a whim to do it right it's not it's not subjective in that sense but I mean it strikes me that that a lot of uh, existentialist philosophy is like that too you know mm -hmm. hey you you, you oh, what is it? I, I think there's uh parts of nietzsche about oh. uh like trying out certain things and being constantly you know uh uh experimenting yeah and um 
You know, it's interesting you bring up Nietzsche because some of the other existentialists, like I know you want to talk about Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, and uh, we can also say Albert Camus fits into this camp. They all say, okay, no, no overarching meaning to life. You got to pick, pick, you know, what you think, but there is still a value in being um, consistent. Like if you're going to pick this, then you're, you're committed to this. I mean, I'm not going to like hold you to the fire and say that you can't, you know, do things differently, but you're going to be inconsistent and being inconsistent is a bad thing. I, Sartre, de Beauvoir, and Camus all, all basically say that. Nietzsche seems much more willing to say, consistency be damned, you know? Um, like, you know, like the Emerson quote, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds, right? Um, Nietzsche seems to say in some parts, like he talks about virtues, for example, and thus spoke Zarathustra. And as opposed to most people who talk about virtues where, you know, the virtues are supposed to like all at least be on the same page. Like you might be more temperate and I might be more courageous or whatever. Uh, and so we have, you know, deficits that we need to work on. But if I do become more temperate, I'll become more like what you're like. And my courage and temperance and wisdom and justice should all kind of kind of fit together, almost like Legos, right? right? Nietzsche says your virtues should actually be like competing with each other, like at war with each other or like like uh, jealous of each other. You know, each one wants to be the whole of what you are. So like your courage would be jockeying for position with your temperance or justice. Um, and it's, it's an interesting idea. I, I'm not sure I buy it, but... Um, mm -hmm. For those of us who are kind of walking contradictions, it might be a bit of a consolation that Nietzsche thought that's that's the normal condition. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, tell me if I have a misconception here, but it kind of feels like it from thus spoke Zarathustra. He speaks about uh, different states of of man, and the last state is the child to be the one that is constantly seeking out new goals to to try out and like finding the, that new adventure always. Um, and yeah. so I, I think th that also includes the adventure of trying out different, like, I don't know, potentially ethical systems or, or philosophical systems just to see how those things fit or feel. Yeah, that that's an important doctrine early on in, in uh, book one, the three, the three transformations, the three metamorphoses, he calls it. And um, the child is, is like the end state. You start out as the camel. Um, which doesn't sound great, but you know it is. It is pretty good. The camel can take on all these burdens and live in the desert and be, you know, ascetic and say, um, uh, "I'll I'll go along with these things and endure." And I, I think Nietzsche kind of sees Stoics like like being like the camel. Mm -hmm. And then you have the lion, and the lion is a big fu to all the moral norms. You know, the the uh, there's actually a fourth animal in there, the dragon, right? The You're dragon right. of thou shalt. Thou shalt. You must <laughs> yeah. take out every single one of those scales that has thou shalt on it yeah and so the lion is the strong enough beast that can say no i'm gonna do things my way but nietzsche sees that as still somehow um not not going far enough and so the child because you're it's just not, it's just a negation it's not actually creating anything yeah exactly yeah yeah um and if you think about it is, is the child really a, a beast no it's a human being but I don't know if you've ever babysat. Maybe you think they are a beast, right? <laughs> uh, 
but but they never they they pick up and drop things at the drop of a hat. I think that's uh, the the yeah. quality he's trying to exude. Yeah, it's it's a not being like borne down. The camel carries a heavy load, right? The mm-hmm. the lion is is like you said negational. It's against the things that are standing in the way. The child can be much more free. Now, I, I do want to say I don't think that thus spoke Zarathustra any more than any other book by Nietzsche is like completely consistent. It's it's like he throws a whole bunch of stuff at you and he's like, you know, see what you can grab from this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Try it out. Uh, but I but I think you're right uh, that, that maybe is a the, really the central doctor. That, I wonder if that's like part of his thinking is that if he was to create something that is oh. uh, holistic and totally works together and everything, a little part fits together that would totally negate the thought that he's trying to put forward. Yes. I think that's completely right. Um, as a matter of fact, we, when I was in graduate school studying philosophy, we would have people who would read Nietzsche and they'd be like, well, Nietzsche says, and Nietzsche says, <laughs> and then we'd be like, listen, buddy, if you want to be a Nietzschean, you can't just like, parrot Nietzsche because he would hate that stuff. <laughs> um. So, are you oh, back free? to crises. Are you free, or, or do we want to go to crises still? Well, let's talk a little bit more about why people wind up in these crises of meaning and and need to find some new meaning. And then I think the existentialist stuff is a really great segue off of that. Mm-hmm. So we we talked about people, you know, where they place their identity. Um, if your whole identity, we see this with like so-called empty nesters their kids go away and they've invested like their whole time is like being a helicopter parent and now the the kids are doing their own thing then they feel lack of meaning in their life or if you're associated i suppose if you're tied in with a a particular political program and it, it completely fails now it feels like your life doesn't have any meaning as well and that's you know that's kind of dangerous when, when and, and sometimes it, it doesn't even have to fail. It just has to be threatened for people to feel like um, meaning is uh, leaving their life, right? Yeah. Two more to put forward are like if you there's the idea of of uh, deaths of despair um, that there's mm. uh, often a correlation between when a spouse dies that the the other one will usually especially if they're like older uh, yeah. die quickly after there because they're they're so wrapped up in their meaning as being a spouse um to a certain extent in the, this uh this despair that you've lost both a person as well as the source of your meaning um results in a negative health state uh and then Another one that's rather salient over the last 20 years is potentially like the Catholic Church and uh, how people became very disillusioned after oh, some right. of the uh, abuse scandals. And so now this this thing that was the basis of their meaning now becomes this kind of abhorrent thing to them. And now they have to grope in the dark trying to find some way to reconcile these things. Yeah, and that's become a problem. I mean, that that's like a never-ending scandal within the Catholic Church. But one of the things that we've realized through doing, like you know, uh, research across uh, professions and stuff, and across the nominations, is that the rate of abuse is about the same across denominations. So Pentecostals have been hit with you know, and with uh, similar issues in recent years. We also know too that, and this this goes to like a a larger crisis of meaning um, 
you know, so you've got clergy, you've got social workers, you've got teachers, you've got police, you've got anybody who's got unsupervised contact with children. Mm-hmm. Um, the rates of abuse appear to be fairly similar across professions. And when you find that out and you start thinking about the trust that was, you know, in the past placed in all of these these uh, professions and now that's being sort of like eroded or or it, it could be about abuse it could be about um uh whether you can trust police to actually arrest the criminals um or protect the public or thinking about politicians and whether you can trust them to follow through on campaign promises i guess you can say that there is erosion of a meaning uh, erosion of meaning within the social sphere right mm-hmm. That, that, the, the results I think a lot in a of lack of are. trust. Yeah, that's yeah. A, and that's a that's a big problem. Um, once you go below a certain threshold, it's it's very difficult to bring that back. And maybe meaning, having full meaning in in a lot of people's lives, um, depends on having a widespread social trust, which may not be a good thing. You know, maybe if if you can't get by, even if you're in a situation where there isn't a lot of widespread social trust, you want to rethink where you're placing your meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very. And that's one of the, the thoughts that really like stuck in my craw that, you know, where, where do you put it? What is the locus of your meaning? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, it's not to say that you can't trust people at all, right? Mm-hmm. Or like people are no damn good, right? <laughs> um, you don't want to become a misanthrope. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you do have to be kind of critical about where you place your, your trust, who, who you, how long it takes to, to build up that, that trust. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also worries in a, in a sort of cosmic sense, like, well, does it mean anything anyway? You know, the earth is going to be destroyed by, you know, whatever, you know, environmental stuff in another hundred years. Or if, it, if that doesn't happen and we get our proverbial crap together and fix the environment, well, sooner or later, the earth is going to, you know, be swallowed up by the sun when it goes red giant. Mm-hmm. What does it matter anyway? We'll all be dead in the end. I think there's, there's, there's some people who feel, you know, when they when they think these cosmic thoughts um they don't always have nice warm fuzzy reactions to it you know like you think about marcus aurelius right a great stoic he thinks about the cosmos and he finds it a consolation to think about the fact that we're all just kind of like little blips you know um not everybody sees it that way yeah i mean a lot of a lot of people are like oh i'm just a blip that sucks but i I like the analogy of um a car. So you get a car, and a car is going to last you maybe like twenty years or whatnot. Um, did was the car meaningless for those twenty years, or, or was it exactly. useful? Exactly. And and so it comes down to like we're here right now. Uh, the experience that we have, we endow with meaning. And so just because you know in a thousand years no one might know our names doesn't take away from the experience of being us as humans right now. I think that's a really good perspective, and I think that's that's a useful remedy when people start feeling those. You used the word despair earlier. I think that's that's sort of a cosmic despair, right? Mm-hmm. One of one of those crises that we talked about. Yeah. So, freedom. Yeah, let, I mean, <laughs> let's talk about that. You know. Um, so, try to like get into the, the meat of this 
quickly by talking about a couple of concepts we are all on, all on the same page. So freedom is uh, through you. You are free because you always have a choice, and so therefore choose. This is from Sartre that you have a faculty of choice in the end. That you are the agent of the choice, and it is on all on you. <laughs> it is your responsibility. And we, and we should we should talk about that when we're saying that you have a choice. It doesn't mean like let's say you're in a prison camp. Well, you lose Victor Frankl's you know man search for meaning. Uh, he unfortunately was one of the people who was placed in the the Nazi uh, death camps, and you know. It's not like he could like suddenly choose and the door is open and everybody uh, and the guards become nice guys or anything like that. That's not what we mean at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we do have a choice about, you know, if you do have a car, where are you going to go with the car? Um, you, you're not going to be able to like turn your car into a much better car, most likely, uh, without a lot of work. Um, we are constrained by our of, our of our choices. We are constrained. Yeah. Um, but but. I mean, sometimes the choice is just of attitude, right? Mm -hmm. It's you don't really have a choice when they're telling you march and they lock you up, but you have a choice about how you look at that. Mm -hmm. Do you say, oh, this is this is terrible, a horrible injustice has been committed, the world sucks? Um, or are you like, well, you know, they're an authority, so I guess, you know, they must have some reason for what they're doing. That's another bad choice, right? Mm -hmm. Or can you be like, well, this sucks, but I don't have to let it, you know, turn my life into misery, right? Yeah, and, and as uh, Victor Frankl was talking about in Man's Search for Meaning, like, those who define their meaning, especially, like, um, instead of, like, oh, I'm going to escape or I'm going to, um, especially if you give it a time period, but, like, oh, uh, here I'm going to be uh, someone that tends to the sick or the the hurt, and so now I've created a meaning within this place that is abjectly horrible. But I yeah. I still have that choice of how I will act and react to the situation that I find myself in, regardless of how horrible it is. That's actually a great example um, of what something you were talking about just a little bit earlier. That just because something isn't going to continue on, right? You might you might tend to a sick person who's going to die anyway, and you're not actually going to extend their life. You're just going to make their final hour less miserable or not even less miserable, but you're just going to be with them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you think about what Mother Teresa's uh, order would do with uh, the dying in uh, India. That's something that that's there's even though it's not going to make some sort of massive difference in the whole cosmic cycle of things, even though probably nobody's going to remember you for doing that. Um, it still is something and it's something positive and it can, it can bring meaning. Right. Um, so another uh, kind of prerequisite thought is uh, facticity and transcendence. And so facticity is uh, that which we are at the moment. So at the moment, we're, we're two guys kind of talking about philosophy on Zoom, um, but we also have transcendence, what we might become. And so, uh, I don't know, uh, Greg uh, might become a, a grandfather at some point in time, or he, he might become a yeah, pilot. Yeah, never know. <laughs> Hopefully not anytime soon. <laughs> right. Or, or for some reason he decides he wants to be a pilot and so he could like totally change like a big life change and like, oh, I'm going to drop all this philosophy stuff and go and be a pilot. That's There's... less likely. <laughs> <laughs> but it is still there. There is a, a chance of it. There, there, 
constantly growing and changing. Um, and yeah, yeah, we're not defined solely by where we are right now or what our past was or the choices that we we made that led us to this point. Um, and and a lot of times, uh, people try to uh, create a a meaning or a uh, idea of how they want to live by trying to reduce one of these into the other to be like, oh, all I am is facticity. And so like, I'm going to be, uh, I don't know, uh, a, a member of the, the Democratic Party. And that is who I am for the rest of my days. And I, I'm never going to change or um, I, I'm going to, you know, join the army. And that is that is my thing for the rest of my days and, and remove any transcendence or to try to uh, throw off totally their facticity of their life and they say oh like I'm I'm just kind of floating here and uh, I can't have any grounding yeah I mean somebody who is as Aristotle calls them consistently inconsistent would that be a form of uh, like trying to be factical pure, in that sense or I would actually say transcendence pure transcendence yeah they're, they're trying to always get away from anything that could hold them in one place to you know potentially reduce yeah um, i mean please. that that's a useful distinction i think um and and the two of them come together i mean at every moment in time according to these existentialists we are transcending the facticity that we we have and and then we fall back into facticity every time that we've made a choice it now becomes part of the the story that we're we're involved in right yeah you you can't help but become like history and or your the things that you choose like uh, you can't help but create your own meaning by every action that you're doing you're you're constantly creating your own meaning uh because your meaning is your choice and your freedom yeah, and and also other people seeing you from the outside, they have their own views on what your meaning is, which may be like totally antithetical to what what you think it is, mm-hmm. and you don't have an awful lot of control over that. Uh, here's here's a place where I think the existentialists and the Stoics are uh, quite similar. You you don't have control over what other people think of you, their opinions, their judgments, their misconceptions, their their, um, you know, prejudices, any of those sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. Uh, and that's kind of some, what, what is the play by uh, Sartre about the, oh, the Are three... you thinking of no exit? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so the, each one of the, the characters has a, a character of themselves, but they also have a reputation that they want the others to believe. And so the whole thing is <laughs> trying to get them to see them uh, so, trying to have the others see them as how they want to see them, even though that they see who they actually are, and that the, yeah. the disconnect between those two things. It's a it's a brilliant piece. That that's the one where we get hell is is other people mm-hmm. as a phrase from. I, this is a total side note. Have you ever heard the um, version, the audio version of it, that was done by Partially Examined Life that had Lucy Lawless as Inez? No, but that sounds amazing. It was. It, it is really quite good. Um, we'll we'll put a link to that as well because it's it's really worth listening to. And so, as Greg said earlier, we live in this this space between this liminal space of being constantly both transcendence and facticity, according to the Stoics. And so, 
uh, Simone de Bolivar, um, are, was uh, worried about people falling into bad faith, and she had a number of categories in which uh, she would define people that are living in bad faith. And so these people are, they um, either don't understand that they have freedom, or they, they see their freedom, um, but they use it really poorly because they, they don't really they don't understand the responsibility that you have as a free person. This is an interesting point. You know, freedom itself, you know, we use this word as if it refers to just one thing, right? Mm-hmm. But part of what it means to be a human being is that our freedom is so unconstrained that we also have freedom about what we do with our freedom, what, how we understand our our freedom. And so bad faith, or in the French, mauvaise foi, right? Um, when we talk about somebody arguing in bad faith, there's like a kind of trickery going on, a kind of self-deception that is happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what she and Jean-Paul Sartre are, are signaling with that. And like Sartre had this example of the waiter who's like pretending too much to just be a waiter mm-hmm. or the other example that I particularly liked is there, there's this woman on a date, right? And, uh, the guy is putting the moves on her and she pretends like she doesn't notice it because she wants to hold on to the moment of thinking that she's being treated as a, as a person not being objectified. And so she ignores his hand, like on her, her, her arm, you know, and knowing where things are going to come to a juncture pretty soon so that she can hold on to that, that moment. She's, she's kind of lying to herself, but she's not, she's not successful in doing so because Mm. there's always like a little bit of knowing that you're, you're doing that at the same time, you know, and it's, it's funny too. Um, So this is, I don't want to take derail us all together, but when we feel what they call imposter syndrome, do you think that's got any connection with bad faith? We like put on a brave face and we're like, I, I, you know, I do know what I'm talking about, even though we're like, yeah, I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about. Um, hmm. Or do you think it's something, something, you know, entirely different or maybe there's, they're part of, you know, some, something that, that connects the both of them or I don't know. I'm not seeing an immediate, like, Connection. strong connection there that might be something there but it's not jumping to mind um let's talk about a couple of these categories so we've got yeah um the sub man and the serious man who are both um categories of people who don't understand uh, or the the existentialist thought that there's no ontological meaning or there's no meaning out there to actually find that the meaning is purely a uh, uh, place that is in the subjective. Um, and so the subman refuses to recognize that they are free by avoiding all questions of freedom. And they, uh, these people are fearful and easily persuaded by rhetoric. And uh, these existentialists that writers that we're talking about live through World War II. And oh, a yeah. lot of this is coming down to, okay, how do I understand how these people come to make the choices that they did that resulted in, you know, uh, the, the fascist governments rising up and then starting world war two. Yeah. And, and all the things that people went along with, you know, mm-hmm. not, not resisting things when they could have, or, you know, buying into the propaganda and saying, well, I guess if, you know, they want to do this to these people, that's, that's a okay. Um, that would be something that the subman 
uh, or sub subhuman person would would fall into. It's like a refusal of being a human being. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, just uh, we're going this way, apparently. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The serious man is is that person that like that that's got that that lifelong devotion to something. They they think they've totally got it figured out, and they they place their meaning in some other group that subsumes them, and so they they sacrifice their freedom to a group or ideology, becoming an object of the group or ideology, and not choosing for themselves. Here's an interesting question. Uh, now she doesn't consider this at all because it's a phenomenon of our time. Could you be the serious person by buying into and like, you know, becoming an important person and curating stuff within a fandom where you're like, this is really, really important. You know, Uh, we must, you know, articulate this and go to all the cons and, you know, have everything set up the the way it ought to be. Um, I mean, we don't think of fandom as like, it's sort of the opposite of seriousness, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe certain ways of being in a fandom could be like being the serious person. I would absolutely agree that uh, that a, a fandom could be the the serious man, the the basis of you know uh, uh, meaning that someone like gloms onto. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a. <laughs> I, I mean, that's not a very technical term, gloms onto, but it's actually a really good term because. We're all, I think we're all familiar with it, right? It's part of our popular culture. It means like somebody, it doesn't originally belong to them and they see it over there and they like, they like almost like wrap their arms around it and try to make that theirs, right? Right. And, and then they, they, they derive their meaning from it. It's like, oh, well now I'm an expert on this particular fandom. And then they gain prestige and reputation among those other people that have all also glommed yeah. onto that same idea. They're they're like the personification of it. Yeah, I don't know if I ever told you this story. Now this is in a very you know abstruse kind of fandom. Um, there, this was told to me by one of my professors when I was in grad school, and it was about a Locke conference that he went to, a conference on John Locke, and there oh. was a there was a um, scholar who had written a lot of articles and a couple books on John Locke. And apparently this guy had really identified himself with John Locke. And there was like a symposium and they were talking about, well, John Locke thinks this and John Locke thinks this. And this guy got mad. He got up and he slammed his hand on the table and he said, that is not my doctrine. And then he suddenly caught himself and everyone was like, what? And he was like a big name, right? So they're going to give him some latitude. And you could tell that the guy had forgotten that he was not John Locke. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That, that can is, happen sometimes. Yeah. I, but the, isn't that exactly what we're talking about here? That that identification? I am the whatever. Yeah. So now there, there are three other groups that um, Simone, de Bo- uh, Simone has a problem with uh, here. Um, so the uh, they, they do realize that there's no ontological meaning out there to grasp, but they use it really poorly. And so we have the nihilist, the adventurer, and the pastor the passionate man and the nihilist um, gives up uh, any values and goals because it's like, Oh, nothing has any meaning. So I just, I give up, um, yeah. which is kind of a sad state of affairs. People like that can be very dangerous. I, I mean, I think many people's experience limited experience with the nihilist is thinking about the big Lebowski and the nihilist showing up and saying, we believe in nothing <laughs> and trying to beat him up. But I mean, somebody who really does believe in nothing, there's, 
there's nothing holding them back, right? Right. Um, but there's there's never anything holding them back. Everyone has freedom, but there is responsibility that comes with freedom. And just because you don't think you yeah. have responsibility doesn't mean that you don't have responsibility. And, yeah. and so this is also the problem with both the, the adventurer and the passionate man who don't realize, like they realize that there's no actual meaning out there and they have now defined their own meaning for themselves. But yeah. their their pursuits of either the, the adventure is uh, doing things just for the, the sake of doing them, the conquest of having doing them. And the passionate man goes, I'm going to do things like that, you know, passionately pursue for them and in themselves um, and not just uh, the completion of them. Uh, yeah. But both of these treat other people as objects and that they don't realize that they have to treat that their freedom um, doesn't give them the latitude to not treat other people as also free and to not oppress them while they're doing these things. Yeah, that's right. The adventurer, as Simone de Beauvoir talks about it, is the person who the whole world is basically like uh, extras in their own movie, right? Mm -hmm. And so they can gun them down if they want to or exploit them. And then the passionate person, you know, like they might passionately love another person, but they're, they're treating that person essentially as an object that is given meaning because of their passion. They're not, their love is not a genuine response to, I don't know, the lovability of the other person, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we see a lot of relationships like this. You know, um, usually they fail eventually, mm -hmm. but they can be quite intense for for a while. Um, and you mentioned, you know, they're they're not they're not treating other people as real people, which means they're not res they're not respecting that freedom exists just as much in the other person as it does in in oneself. To treat these subjects as objects, to reduce them to objects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so the the conclusion she she comes with like you know all these people are, are like kind of moving towards this realization hopefully at the end um if you're going to move through all these that you you have freedom to make all your choices thus you get to choose your own meaning um but you your your freedom comes with it responsibility and if you're using if you're you failing at your responsibility to uh, treat others as free individuals uh, not only is that like bad in the sense that you are oppressing people uh, in this yeah. things but you're also hurting yourself because uh in simone's um ideal that you're trying to maximize your freedom and you maximize your freedom by having more other free people around you Right, who or your freedom can be at least partially compatible with, you know, you know, and that I, it just occurred to me one of the ways in which you would respect other people's freedom would be um, a sort of receptivity to hearing what they have to say about what you're doing with your freedom, mm -hmm. right? If they're like, "Hey, man, you're being a jerk." Uh, and you're like, shut up, you know, my freedom. Um, I think you're not respecting the freedom of other people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if, if somebody's constantly like running behind you and saying, jerk, 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 okay, that's different. Right? <laughs> but um, we, in order to be, re in order to, 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 to realize what you're talking about, um, having a meaningful life, that one that's connected with other people, we have to be willing to hear them out because we're all we're all kind of messed up, right? Mm 
and we're going to make mistakes. And so, I mean, they can be mistaken in diagnosing our mistakes, but we probably do need to provide them the space and respect to be able to to say something at, at some point in time, right? Yeah, and, and to not, I guess, you know, blow up or, or chide them for, like, saying, like, hey, I, I need these things as well, that, like, yeah. I, I'm not just an object here, I am a subject. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end of the hour. Should we talk about a very quick uh, practice. practice that people Absolutely. might put into? So Epictetus in his Enchiridion talks about a worry a lot of people have in practicing Stoic philosophy. And I think it could be something, any sort of philosophy as a way of life, where one would say, oh, if I do this sort of thing, I'm not going to be somebody. And he uses those words. I'm going to be a nobody. I won't be able to like help my friends. Nobody's going to pay attention to me. And this is a worry that a lot of people have today. You know, a lot of people are worried, maybe I am nobody, maybe I don't matter, maybe my life is meaningless. And one, when, when that happens, I, I, I think that it can be productive instead of saying, oh, no, no, no you know, I, I definitely have meaning. Well, think about where you've placed the meaning of your life and then say, am I getting what I want out of like trying to pursue a ton of money or be popular or stuff like that? Or, you know, do you want to pursue something else like say stoicism or existentialism or some other uh, philosophy as a way of life that would orient you towards something that will provide more genuine meaning that's robust, that lasts, that you can, you know, uh, keep coming back to over and over again. I mean, what, what's what do you think about that? We still have a, a little bit of time. Yeah. Uh, how, I think you and I have done that sort of instinctively with embracing the kinds of philosophies we're interested in. Right. That yes, the idea that the your reputation is not um, uh, what defines you. Yeah, it's a uh, indifferent in Stoic philosophy as well as as we talked about the um, was it no exit. Um, right. That, you know, <laughs> that, Other people are going to give you your reputation, and you're gonna you're gonna have it whether you like it or not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, I think we'll, we probably have a lot more to say about this. So I think we'll pick this up again in future uh, future uh, episodes. Right. Oh, you don't you think that we couldn't like cover meeting in Exhaust one hour? Meeting. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you want to lead us out on uh, some final thoughts? So, um, we're going to leave you with the words of Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, Freedom is the source from which all significance and values spring. It is the original condition of all justification of existence. 